0: I ask you to take your Bibles, please, and to turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19 is the portion of Scripture that we're going to look at in a few minutes, Um, just verses 1 to 10 this morning. So please follow with me in your Bibles uh, as we read God's Word together. Revelation 19 verse 1. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her To clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Just so far in God's word this morning. Well, in God's providence today, we come to this next section in Revelation um, And I did. I wrestled. Do I continue in the series this week or do I preach a message uh, to encourage God's people in the face of of the sadness of this past week? And and I was graciously, I think, led by the Lord to see that this is the passage uh, for us to find encouragement as the Lord's people uh, because this is a passage that lifts our eyes from the earth and to look to the heavens not only to to see what is happening in the heavens, but to see the perspective of heaven and the saints in heaven as they look down uh, on earth. And so possibly today, more than any other Sunday, we need this heavenly perspective. So let me open with the words of one of the commentators that I was reading this week. He said, during this brief earthly pilgrimage, We cannot see very far ahead of our nose. Often we cannot make sense of what is happening around us. Sometimes even in our own lives it's hard to understand. But up there, all is clear. Have you noticed that when all is clear, in that morning without clouds, all the saints are supremely happy? It makes me think of the old gospel chorus he says, trials dark on every hand and we cannot understand all the way the Lord would lead us to the blessed promised land, but he'll guide us with his eye and we'll see him in the sky. We will understand it better by and by, by and by when the morning comes, when all the saints of God are gathered home, we will tell the story of how we've overcome, we will understand it better better by and by. He goes on to say, it may not be very good poetry or music, but it accurately reflects what we have in this text. And so we come today to the great turning point in the book of Revelation, uh, where although we will still again briefly see the realities of the final judgment of the wicked, we'll see that in, in verse 11 to 21, and we'll see it again briefly in chapter 20, but the focus of the remaining chapters in Revelation is now on the glories of what awaits us when Jesus Christ returns. If you still have your diagram, you will see that Revelation 19 verse 1 to 10, it's a green block at the end of the sixth cycle of visions, taking us forward to that moment of, and the eternity following, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what these verses will just briefly introduce today, we'll come back to explore in, in much more detail in chapters 21 and 22. But these 10 verses form the great transition from the previous two chapters, chapter 17 and 18, on on the fall of the the great prostitute Babylon and the beasts. But they also come at the end of all the previous cycles of, of judgment and destruction and evil and chaos that we've seen taking place throughout the history of the church. In all the previous cycles of visions, we've seen a great battle unfolding, a battle between the the dragon, who is Satan, and the woman, the church of Jesus Christ, between his followers and, and her offspring. And we've seen God's partial judgment falling on the earth, on all those who worship the beast. We saw that with the seven trumpets of judgment. We saw it again with the seven bowls of God's wrath. But each of those visions showed us only God's partial judgment and then brought us to the end of history where we were given a a brief glimpse into the day of the Lord's return and the final judgment of the wicked. But the whole of chapter 17 and 18 were given then to describe the end of the world as we know it, as we saw last week, as Babylon falls, as nations and kings and merchants and every human being who who lives and buys and sells her wares are cast like a great millstone into the sea of final destruction. If you were here last week, you'll remember chapter 18 left us with a scene of global silence. After the great violence and the collapse of Babylon, we are told there was no more music, no more arts and crafts or the sound of skilled artisans working, no more industry, no more light, no more relationships, no more marriage, just silence. As the smoke of her destruction rises into the sky. Then we get to chapter 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants." So as we come to this passage today, in the first place, I want us to see heaven's perspective on the judgment of the wicked, and we see that heaven rejoices over the judgment of Babylon. Heaven rejoices over the judgment of Babylon. Now, the most prominent word in these 10 verses is the word hallelujah, which is one of the very few Hebrew words from the Hebrew Old Testament which made it through into the Greek New Testament and then which continues into our English language unchanged. It's this word hallelujah and we've just sung Christ our hope in life and death hallelujah but you might be surprised to find that the word hallelujah only occurs in our English Bibles these four times. Hallelujah is a compound word in Hebrew from halal, which means to praise, and yah, which is short for Yahweh, the covenant name of God. And so hallelujah comes together to mean praise the Lord. So in, in our English Bibles, we don't find the word hallelujah in the Psalms, but it's there because that's where it comes from. It's there in the Hebrew. Thirty-four times the psalmist cries out Hallelujah. But if you go and look for it in your Bible, it'll be translated, Praise the Lord, with Lord usually in all caps to refer to the covenant name of God, Yahweh. And so as we come to Revelation 19, we see that John lifts his eyes from the destruction of the earth, the scene of Babylon's destruction, the scene of complete silence, and as he looks to heaven, he hears what seems to be the voice of a great multitude in the heavens, and they are crying out, hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And verse 2 is the crux. For, because his judgments are true and just. Because he has judged the great prostitute. Now if you think that maybe they're a little bit confused to be praising God for judgment, Verse 3 tells us that they're not. Look at verse 3. Hallelujah, they cry out again. The smoke of her goes up forever and ever. And just in case you think that it's only the great multitude who feel this way, verse 4 tells us that the 24 elders, that's symbolic representing of all of God's people in both the Old and the New Testament throughout the ages as well as the four living creatures who represent the four corners of the created universe, what do they cry out? Amen. They echo what the multitude has said, and then they themselves cry out, hallelujah. And then for the fourth time, there's a voice coming from the very throne of God saying basically the same thing. Praise our God, all you servants who fear him, small and great. I think the point of John's vision in these first few verses is to show us how all-encompassing the scope is of what John sees in the heavens. Everything on earth has been destroyed. We are left on the earth with a scene of total silence while everything in heaven abounds with life. Everything in heaven resounds with singing and praise and rejoicing and worshiping God for his salvation through judgment. Now, I think it is right for us as Christians to ask the question, is it appropriate for the saints in heaven to be rejoicing over the destruction of the wicked? Is that right? Is that proper? And the key thing we need to see here is that chapter 19 occurs after the end of the world as we know it. You see, we are still alive on this side of that day. You and I, while we're on this side of that day, we are called to mourn over the death of the wicked. God's judgment on those who refuse to repent in this life, that's a terrible thing. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because they had rejected, his people had rejected him. We should be a people who are constantly weeping over the eternal judgment of the lost, pleading with unbelievers to repent so that they will be saved from this terrible day of judgment that we saw in chapter 17 and 18. So God forbid that we ever take delight in the death of the wicked. We know that God does not. He says, I do not take delight in the death of the wicked, but am patient towards them that they would repent and believe. But this vision is on the other side of that day. On that day, we are now given a window into the other side of history as as the angels look back, as the saints in heaven look back, The dragon and his beasts have been revealed for who they really are. The prostitute Babylon has been exposed and destroyed for all her corruption and immorality and murder. Every person is destroyed on that day for shaking their fists at God and cursing him with their very last breath. And so on that day, the opportunity for grace will be over. On that day, the righteous judgment of God will be revealed. And on that day, the only appropriate response for all eternity in all of heaven will be the endless hallelujahs of the saints. But can I remind you, until that day comes, let us take to heart the words of Charles Spurgeon. I've quoted it before, I think, my brothers and sisters. If sinners would be damned, at least let them leap into hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay and not madly to destroy themselves. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. So that brings me to our second heavenly perspective from this passage. We'll spend most of our time here this morning. This is Heaven Rejoices Over the Marriage of the Lamb in verses 6 to 8. Verses 1 to 5 we're, were the transition from earth to heaven, from the destruction of God's enemies on earth to the praise of his justice in heaven. But now the scene stays fully in heaven. It's, it's completely what awaits the saints of God for all eternity. Let's read verse 6 to 8. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out again for the fourth time, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Here we see for the fourth and final time in these verses, this exclamation of all of heaven, crying out, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And I want us to see three reasons, three reasons for the eternal praise of the saints. If you remember my illustration from a couple weeks ago of of a flash forward, well, this is John's vision. This is John's flash forward about your future and mine if we are Christian's. And so if these three reasons that we're going to look at now will keep us worshiping God for all eternity, then surely they should profoundly impact the praise and the worship of God here on earth. So the first reason for the eternal hallelujah chorus is because the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Now please bear with me as I I read a slightly longer quote uh, from Douglas Kelly, uh, who's a commentator on the book of Revelation, and I was reading his commentary in the wake of Stuart's death this past week. I was still wrestling whether or not I should preach this passage or not, and it was this portion that persuaded me to keep going in Revelation. And so let me read to you what Douglas Kelly says. Saints and angels... Are all but bursting wide open with praise because the reign of God, so often hidden from our eyes of faith, is now so visible that no one, saint or sinner, angel or demon, can miss it. The saints are now full of praise because what they had to accept by faith in times of darkness now shines brighter than the noonday sun before their eyes. It's not that God was not reigning in their times of darkness. He was in total control even at the high point of Satan's influence over the fallen human race. So too was he in control over the persecution of the church when Revelation was written. But now in chapter 19, everything is visible and the church sees. Sometimes our lives... Especially when we experience disappointments and reversals and betrayals or things that feel like disasters to us and our family, we don't feel like proclaiming hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. That's not how we feel in the flesh. That's not how our besieged minds see things. But faith tells us, and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith. 1 John 5 verse 4, victorious faith tells us that God is reigning. He is in charge even during the worst moments of my life. The magnificent wedding day will demonstrate to an assembled universe in open fashion that the Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. On that day and with that ceremony, we will appreciate that all our dark times were in some way necessary. Just like Jesus' crucifixion and its darkness was necessary to get him and his people to resurrection Sunday when the gates of heaven would forever be swung wide open. Our times of darkness have been necessary way stations for us to get to that day of glory. When we shall shine forth with his light, transformed in faith and character, as times of darkness did their own mysterious work within us. What a day of singing that will be when all is made clear and faith melts away into sight. End quote. And end the first reason for us to sing this eternal hallelujah chorus. The second Reason for this eternal hallelujah chorus is because all of history has reached its ultimate goal, the marriage feast of the Lamb. Think back to the storyline of the Bible. Ever since the entrance of sin into the heart of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, this world has been groaning under the weight and the brokenness and the guilt of our sin. The wages of sin is death. And so the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation has actually been one long love story, a love story of God pursuing a rebellious people with his love, wooing us with his grace, warning us through his judgments, bringing us back to himself through his discipline so that at the end of the story, we could be married to his Son. Now, part of us perhaps not appreciating the significance that the whole Bible ends in a wedding is because we don't understand the process of getting married the way the ancients did. And so let me quote here from William Hendrickson, who explains this so well. He says, "'Wedding practices in biblical times were different from ours today. First, the parents arranged the betrothal of their children.' And once the terms of the marriage were publicly accepted, the couple was legally married. This was followed by an interval of varying lengths between the betrothal and the wedding. And during this time, the groom would pay the dowry to the father of the bride or perhaps provide an arranged period of service. The wedding itself took the form of a procession in which the bride was taken from her father's house to the home of her husband. And as the wedding drew near, the bride prepared and adorned herself to be presented to the groom. And upon her arrival, the groom received his bride from the father and the wedding feast began a banquet which usually lasted seven days. Hendrickson goes on, In Christ, The bride was chosen from eternity. Throughout the entire Old Testament dispensation, the wedding was announced. Next, the Son of God assumed our flesh and blood, and the betrothal took place. The price of the dowry was paid on Calvary. And now, after an interval, which in the eyes of God is but a little while, the bridegroom returns it has come, the wedding of the Lamb. Then we shall be with him forevermore. It will be holy, blessed, everlasting fellowship, the fullest realization of all the promises of the gospel. End quote. What we have in these verses is really the, the description of what every earthly marriage is intended to point towards. As Paul said in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might, what? Present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So that's the second reason all of history has reached its ultimate goal, the marriage feast of the Lamb. And then the third reason for the eternal hallelujah chorus is that the bride was was clothed in fine linen. She was made ready by being clothed in linen, which is bright and pure. Now here we have another reminder that, that what John is seeing is a vision, it's symbolic Vivid imagery that's pointing to profound spiritual truth. And we are told that the bride is clothed in fine linen, bright and pure, which is the righteous deeds of the saints. This is not a literal bride with a literal clothing. This is a spiritual bride. It's the church. And the church is clothed in righteousness. Now, this verse has led some to try and argue that our entrance into heaven, our entrance into the marriage feast of the Lamb is through our good works, the righteous deeds of the saints. But that would be to miss the whole point, firstly, of the gospel, of the abundantly clear teaching in the New Testament, and it would actually be to miss the point of the very hallelujahs being called out in this text. Because look at verse eight. These clothes of righteous deeds are are given to the bride to clothe her. It's a gift she's granted with these. And so firstly, we need to understand that in the immediate context, there is meant to be a a contrast between the clothing of this bride and the clothing of the prostitute Babylon. Remember chapter 17, verse 4. Babylon the harlot was clothed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. Those were all symbols for her power of seduction to lead the earth into spiritual adultery with her. Again, in chapter 18, we told that all the nations drank the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And then in verse 16 and 17, we are told that her fine purple and scarlet clothing and all her gold and jewels were laid waste in a single hour. But now in Revelation 19, the bride of the Lamb is clothed in something which will never ever be destroyed, in the pure and bright linen of our salvation. Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10 I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Philippians 3, verse 8 and 9, Paul says, I count everything as a loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, I count everything a loss. I consider them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness which which comes from God and depends on faith. And so this is a wonderful gospel truth to be reminded of here this morning, that we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, that this is all a work of God's grace. It's, it's not by works, so that no one may boast. But the point of this verse is that this is not a doctrine which stands alone. We are saved by faith alone, but true saving faith is never alone. It always leads to the fruit. The fruit of our salvation is the works, the righteous deeds of the saints. So Paul could not be clearer in Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God. There he said it for a second time. Third time, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, so three times we've been saved by grace. Then he goes on and says, and we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. James says exactly the same thing. What good is it, my brothers, if you say that you have faith, but there's no works? Can that kind of a faith save you? It's a false faith. True faith, says James, always leads to works. So you show me your faith without works. Go on, try. But I will show you my faith by my works. This should not surprise us. This is exactly what God promised in the Old Testament to Ezekiel. Yes, it's been partially fulfilled in the church age, but what we have before us in Revelation 19 is the complete fulfillment of Ezekiel 36 verse 24. I will take you from the nation, says God, and I'll gather you and bring you into your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I'll remove your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you. It's all a work of God's grace up to this point. And then he says, I'll put my spirit within you and my spirit will cause you to walk in my statutes and to obey my rules. And you will dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. So I hope you can see that that these three reasons for eternal praise of God profoundly and, and practically impact every single day of our lives here on earth. As you look at that first point, as you and I sit here today with questions and doubts at the end of such a sad week, we need to be reminded that in every second of this past week, even the seconds of Wednesday morning and in every moment of this week ahead that our God, the Almighty, reigns. We may not see it clearly now, I certainly don't, and we certainly don't understand it now, but on that day, we will see it perfectly and we will shout out, Hallelujah, our God reigns. What we hold on to by faith now will then become sight. What we sing of in hope now will then become our eternal reality. The second profound impact that this chorus in heaven has on the present is that all of history has a purpose. It has a grand and a glorious purpose, which is the marriage feast of the Lamb. That's what the whole Bible is about. That's what your and my life is about. We've been betrothed to Jesus. He has paid the price with his own life. We belong to him as fully now as we will belong to him in heaven one day. But we are not yet with him. And so we look forward with eager anticipation for his return so that the marriage feast can begin and never end. All of purpose has a history. Remember that poem from a couple weeks back Only one life, it'll soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And then the third profound practical impact that this has on our lives is that how we live now matters. Yes, our salvation is all a gift of God. His righteousness is perfect. It's credited to our account. But that means every day of our lives matters as we then walk in the good works which he has prepared in advance for us to walk. If you and I have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith, we will live each day according to our new uniform. Kent Hughes tells the wonderful story of a, of a boy who longed for a model sailboat. He spent weeks building the boat from a kit. When it was finally complete, he he took the boat to the lake where he put it on the water and it sailed so beautifully, it sailed off into the sunset. Right out of sight, it was gone. And despite all his efforts, the boy could not find the boat. Several weeks later, he was walking down the street and he saw in a shop window his boat and it had an expensive price tag on it. And so he went to the store owner and explained to the shopkeeper his story, but the owner said, I'm sorry, this is my boat. I bought it with lots of money. I cannot give it away for nothing. So the boy took up multiple jobs, worked for weeks until he had the money to buy back his boat. And finally, as he walked out of the store with his precious boat in his hand, he said to the boat, now you are twice mine. Once because I made you and once because I bought you. So it is with God, says Kent. He created us and then we went astray. We were lost in our sin and so he purchased us back with the precious blood of Jesus. How wonderful it is to be twice his, and thus God's willing servants forever. How we live now matters. And we need to close, and and my last point will be very brief, um, which is to see in the final place today that heaven rejoices over the gospel invitation. Verse 9, the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these words, sorry, these are the true words of God. Now really this last point is is the application for those who are unbelievers here this morning. And you know in your own heart who you are. Because the end of the world as we know it is coming. This world will be destroyed Did you perhaps notice that we've not been introduced to one character in these 10 verses? Who's missing? The bridegroom is missing in these verses. And the reason for that is that he's busy with one more task before he comes to begin the wedding feast. And we're gonna consider that next week. But as you scan ahead in the remaining verses, you will see that the bridegroom comes onto the scene as the rider on a white horse and he rides out in final judgment with a sword in his mouth to make war on all his enemies and not one will remain unpunished by his holy wrath and so today you either belong to the prostitute babylon you continue in your rebellion against god it may be an inner rebellion it may be an outer rebellion you will be destroyed by the sword of his mouth or you can respond to the invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you do, if you respond, you are called blessed. It's only those who accept the invitation before Jesus rides out on the horse who are welcomed in as part of the bride. And so the gospel invitation is presented to you today. Actually, the angel made sure of it. He said to John, write this down. Write this down. These are the true words of God. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So can I appeal to those of you who are unbelievers this morning? Knowing all that you now know about Babylon as we considered in the last few chapters, all her seductions and deceptions, knowing about her final end, and then considering that all heaven rejoices and will rejoice, filled with life for all eternity, why on earth would you choose to reject the invitation? Stuart went about his daily activities on Wednesday morning, not knowing that before breakfast time he would stand before the Lord Jesus. Jesus he was ready to meet his Lord and King. He was ready because he had accepted the invitation of the Lamb. And so we read in Revelation 14, verse 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Are you ready to die in the Lord? I pray that you would be. And if not, please don't leave here today. Come and speak to me or speak to any other Christian here that you can accept this invitation of the Lamb. You and I do not know whether we'll be back here next week. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning and we want to thank you again for this incredible picture that you are giving us to the end of the world. And in a sense, the culmination of the entire storyline of the Bible. And Lord, we must confess how easily we are that wandering ship that sailed away from you again and again and again, but you've pursued us and you bought us back with the greatest price that could ever be paid, the death of your own son, the Lord Jesus on the cross. And so, Lord, I pray today that there would not be one soul who's attended these two services, not one soul who's watched this online, who will reject the invitation to the marriage feast of the Lamb. And Lord, for those of us who have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ and are by faith clothed in his righteousness, won't you help us by the Spirit within us to walk faithfully? in the good works that you have prepared in advance for us to walk in. And so we say, even so, come Lord Jesus, come quickly, we pray. Amen.